Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning in to Season 2 of the Page Turners Podcast. Man, it is your host, Elgin Bailey. Uh, I am very, very excited about Season 2. Before I dig into this particular book study, man, let me do some housekeeping as uh, (laughs) the podcasters tend to say out there. I want to say thank you, thank you, thank you to everybody who has supported the Page Turners, man, who has been a part of the process, who has provided feedback, criticism, ideas, uh, etc., etc., etc. I thank you all sincerely for uh, your support, man. I am beyond grateful Uh, yeah I'm thoroughly thoroughly excited season one was uh, black theology and black power by the late great Dr. James H. Cone Uh, it was tremendous I learned so much even just rereading that text. And for those of you guys, this might be your first time tuning in, man, to the Page Turners. Uh, We select a book each season and we go through the book page by page, reading what the author wrote, reading the research, uh, checking the data, all those things. And in between those, pages and things, I offer commentary, I give feedback, I ask questions, uh, I carry the conversation and the discussion further with the intent of facilitating discussions that take place offline and planting seeds and watering seeds. Uh, The goal for the page turners is to combat literacy, to provide a foundation for racial literacy uh, to just be able to talk and discuss books uh, that are important to the world and also to talk about books and offer more context from a black perspective season two season two season two we are dealing with and reading a book called Evicted, Poverty and Profit in the American City by Matthew Desmond. Evicted, Poverty and Profit in the American City by Matthew Desmond. Winner of a Pulitzer Prize. Also one of the 10 best books, the New York Times Book Review from 2016. Winner of the 2016 National Book Critics Circle Award. Winner of the 2017 Penn John Kenneth Gilbreth Award. Winner of the 2017 Andrew Carnegie Medal. Winner of the 2017 Penn New England Award. Winner of the 2016 Barnes & Noble Discover Great New Writers Award. Finalist for the 2016 Los Angeles Time Book Prize. Finalist for the 2016 Kirkus Prize. 
evicted and evicted Princeton sociologist and MacArthur genius Matthew Desmond follows eight families in Milwaukee as they each struggle to keep a roof over their heads. Held as a retching and revelatory, vivid and unsettling, evicted transforms our understanding of poverty and economic exploitation while providing fresh ideas for solving one of 21st century America's most devastating problems. Its unforgettable scenes of hope and loss remind us of the centrality of home without which nothing else is possible. I am so looking forward to digging in this, and in just a moment, I will. But there were a few books on the season two selection list, man. Um, I really wanted to find a book that was dealing with something that was incredibly current, uh, that can be tied into a number of things. And with Evicted, we can talk about poverty. We can talk about gentrification. Uh, We can talk about the racial wealth gap. There's so many other discussions that are going to be birthed out of this book. And I'm excited. So, with all the housekeeping taken care of, let's dig in with the prologue. Jury and his cousins were cutting up, tossing snowballs at passing cars. From Jury's street corner on Milwaukee's near south side, cars driving on 6th Street passed squat duplexes with porch steps ending at a sidewalk edge and dandelions. Those heading north approached the Balasaka of St. Josephette, whose crowning dome looked to Jury like a giant overturned plunger. It was January of 2008. 2008, and the city was experiencing the snowiest winter on record. Every so often, a car turned off 6th Street to navigate Arthur Avenue, hemmed in by the snow, and that's when the boys would take aim. Jory packed a tight one and let it fly. The car jerked to a stop and a man jumped out. The boys ran inside and locked the door to the apartment where Jory lived with his mother, Arlene, and brother, younger brother, Jafaris. The lock was cheap and the man broke down the door with a few hard heel kicks. He left before anything else happened. When the landlord found out about the door, she decided to evict Arlene and her boys. They had been there eight months. The day Arlene and her boys had to be out was cold. But if they waited any longer, the landlord would summon the sheriff who would arrive with a gun a team of boot-footed movers, and a folded judge's order saying that her house was no longer hers. She would be given two options, truck or curb. Truck would mean that her things would be loaded into an 18-footer and later checked into a bond storage. She could get everything back after paying $350. Arlene didn't have $350. So she would have opted for curb, which would mean watching the movers pile everything onto the sidewalk. Her mattress, a floor model television, her copy of Don't Be Afraid to Discipline, her nice glass dining room table, and a lace tablecloth that fit just so. 
silk plants, Bibles, the meat cuts in the freezer, the shower curtain, Jafarius, asthma machine. Arlene took her sons, Jury was 13, and Jafarius was five, to a homeless shelter, which everybody called the lodge so she can tell your kids we're staying at the lodge tonight like it was a motel. The two-story stucco building could have passed for one, except for all the Salvation Army signs. Arlene stayed in a 120-bed shelter until April, when she found a house on 19th and Hampton in the predominantly black inner city on Milwaukee's north side, not far from her childhood home. It had thick trim around the windows and doors and was once Kendall Green, but the paint had faded and chipped so much over the years that the bare wood siding was now exposed, making the house look camouflaged. At one point, someone had started repainting the house plain white, but had given up mid brush stroke, leaving more than half unfinished. There was often no water in the house, and Jory had to bucket out what was in the toilet. But Arlene loved that it was spacious and set apart from the other houses. It was quiet, she remembered. And 525 for a whole house, two bedrooms upstairs, two bedrooms downstairs. It was my favorite place. After a few weeks, the city found Arlene's favorite place, unfit for human habitation. Removed her, nailed green boards over the windows and doors, issued a fine to her landlord. Arlene moved Jury and Jafaris into a drab apartment complex deeper in the inner city on Atkinson Avenue, which she soon learned was a haven for drug dealers. She feared for her boys, especially Jury, slack-shouldered, with pecan-brown skin and a beautiful smile, who could talk to anyone. Arlene endured four summer months on Atkinson's before moving into a bottom duplex unit on 13th Street in Keith, a mile away. She and the boys walked their things over. Arlene held her breath and tried the lights, smiling with relief when they came on. She could live off someone else's electricity bill for a while. There was a fist-sized hole in the living room window. The front door had to be locked when an ugly wooden plank dropped into middle brackets and the carpet was filthy and ground in. But the kitchen was spacious and the living room well lit. Arlene stuffed a piece of clothing into the window hole and hung ivory curtains. The rent was $550 a month, utilities not included. The going rate in 2008 for a two-bedroom unit in one of the worst neighborhoods in America's fourth poorest city. Arlene couldn't find a cheaper place, at least not one fit for human habitation. And most landlords wouldn't rent her a smaller one on account of her boys. The rent would take 88% of Arlene's $628 a month welfare check. Maybe she could make it work. Maybe they could at least stay through the winter until crocus and tulips stabbed through the thawed ground spring, Arlene's favorite season. There was a knock at the door. It was the landlord, Sharina Tarver. Sharina, a black woman with bobbed hair and fresh nails, was loaded down with groceries. She had spent $40 of her own money 
and pick up the rest of the food pantry. She knew Arlene needed it. Arlene thanked Sharina and closed the door. Things were off to a good start. I sigh, family, uh, because just in the few pages of the prologue, you should be able to hear desperation. You should be able to hear frustration. Your heart should automatically be going out to Arlene, Jury, and Jafaris. But the sad thing is, for some of you, instead of your heart going out to Arlene and her two boys, you're looking for reasons and, and ways of why and how you can possibly blame Arlene for the position that she's in. What could she have done differently? Why? How come she's not working harder? She could have made better choices. But the good thing about this book is that you're going to be able to see people working hard. You're going to be able to see people trying. You're going to be able to see people overcoming great, terrible obstacles. But if you listen closely, what you're also going to see is systemic reasons why people are in poverty. You're going to see why they're struggling, why there is this mindset of, I can make it work when 88% of my welfare check is going to go to a house that in all honesty is not fit for any human to live. Arlene gets $628 a month in a welfare check. of that is going to her rent. Not her utilities included. Not her food. Not her her necessities. Not her toiletries. Not toilet paper, toothbrush. Not soap powder. Not soap. Not the basic everyday needs. But 88% of her of her welfare check, man, is going to her rent to a place that is not fit for humans to live. So I hope you continue to listen, man. And listen close. And the text reads, even in most desolate areas of American cities, Evictions used to be rare. They used to draw crowds. Eviction riots erupted during the Depression, even though the number of poor families who faced eviction each year was a fraction of what it is today. A New York Times account of community resistance to the eviction of three Bronx families in February of 1932 observed, probably because of the cold, the crowd numbered only a thousand. Sometimes neighbors confronted the marshals directly, sitting on the evicted family's furniture to prevent removal or moving the family back in despite the judge's orders. The marshals themselves were humiliated about carrying out evictions 
It wasn't why they carried a badge or a gun. These days, there are sheriff squads whose full-time job is to carry out eviction and foreclosure orders. There are moving companies specializing in evictions. Their crews working all day, every workday. There are hundreds of data mining companies that sell landlords, tenant screening reports, listing past evictions and court filings. These days, housing courts swell, forcing commissioners to settle cases in hallways or makeshift offices crammed with old desks and broken file cabinets. And most tenants don't even show up. Low-income families have grown used to the rumble of moving trucks. The early moving, early morning knocks at the door. The belongings lining the curb. Families have watched their income stagnant or even fall while their housing costs have soared. Today, the majority of poor renting families in America spend over half of their income on housing. At least one in four dedicates over 70% to paying their rent and keeping the lights on. Millions of Americans are evicted every year because they can't make rent. In Milwaukee, a city of fewer than 105,000 renter household, landlords evict roughly 16,000 adults and children each year. That's 16 families evicted through the court system daily. But there are other ways, cheaper and quicker ways, for landlords to remove a family than through court order. Some landlords pay tenants a couple hundred dollars to leave by the end of the week. Some take off the front door. Some take off the front door. Some take off the front door. Nearly half of all forced moves experienced by renting families in Milwaukee are informal evictions that take place in the shadow of the law. If they count all the forms of involuntary displacement, formal and informal evictions, landlord foreclosures, building condemnations, you discover that between 2009 and 2011, more than one in eight Milwaukee renters experienced a forced move. There's nothing special about Milwaukee when it comes to eviction. The numbers are similar in Kansas City, Cleveland, Chicago, and other cities. In 2013, one in eight poor renting families nationwide were unable to pay all their rent, and a similar number thought it was likely that they would be evicted soon. This book is set in Milwaukee, but it tells an American story. Evicted follows eight families, some black, some white, some with children, some without, swept up in the process of eviction. The evictions take place throughout the city, embroidering not only landlords and tenants, but also kin and friends, lovers and ex-lovers, judges and lawyers, dope suppliers and church elders. Evictions fallout is severe. Losing a home sends families to shelters abandoned houses, and the street. It invites depression and illness, compels families to move in degrading housing in dangerous neighborhoods, uproots communities, and harms children. Eviction reveals people's vulnerability and 
desperation as well as their ingenuity and guts. Fewer and fewer families can afford a roof over their head. This is among the most urgent and pressing issues facing America today. And acknowledging the breadth and depth of the problem changes the way we look at poverty. For decades, we focused mainly on jobs, public assistance, parenting, and mass incarceration. No one can deny the importance of these issues. But something fundamental is missing. We have failed to fully appreciate how deeply housing is implicated in the creation of poverty. Not everyone living in a distressed neighborhood is associated with gang members, parole officers, employers, social workers, or pastors. But nearly all of them have a landlord. That's just a prologue, fam. We haven't even dug into the actual meat of the book yet. We haven't even dug into the meat of the book. Have you ever been evicted? Do you know what it's like to be evicted? Do you know anyone who has? If the answer is yes, what was your or their experience? Like how did it affect you or their life? I'm just going back, man, looking over the prologue and looking at some of the Just some of the data, some of the numbers. And the one thing, one of the things that stands out to me so, so vividly, man, was that $628 welfare check. And this is 2008. Six hundred twenty-eight dollars and five hundred and fifty of that dollar goes to rent. Now just think. The author describes the place that she's living in. Arlene and her two boys it describes the place that she's residing in. It gives a glimpse of the place. There's a, a huge hole in the window. There's, there's not adequate lock on the doors. So she has to use a wood, piece of wood to cl- attempt to close the door. The carpet is filthy. Now, this is But $550, it's either that or the homeless shelter called the lodge. But I just, I, I'm thinking... How much does it cost? How much money does it take to live and make it for a full month? And I'm talking about just needs. I'm not not talking about, you know, your your cable bill, your cell phone bill, 
you know, all those extra things, your Netflix, your Hulu, I'm talking about just basic everyday needs. Could you imagine? That's just poverty, man, is such. I remember this one quote that I heard a while back ago when I was doing some research on, you know, uh, wealth inequality and the racial wealth gap and poverty and all those things and and getting attempting to get a clearer understanding on why there are so many people living in poverty fighting that 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 thought process of the choices they made have placed them in that position and i and i began to examine and look man and realize that poverty is expensive Poverty costs a lot, man. Poverty's not cheap. Poverty is, and I don't, and I, I'm thinking, I'm searching my mind for a, a metaphor or an analogy to describe what poverty is like. And I, you know what? I, I don't even want to find one. I don't want to find a metaphor or analogy to, because no metaphor or analogy is going to be sufficient enough to provide the clarity of what poverty is like. What it's like, that feeling to live with the constant awareness that at any moment, because I don't have the money, that someone could possibly come and take the front door off of where I'm staying in order for me to move out because I can't afford to stay where I'm staying. And then how evictions and poverty have spawned all these businesses. How all these businesses are birthed out of people not having money. You have movers, you have sheriffs and and movers who specifically their full-time job, their nine to five, is to go around in poverty-stricken, poor, crime-ridden, drug-infested environments and kick people out of their homes. How the movers have spawned this. How there's been so many businesses that have been birthed out of not being able to pay your rent. It's expensive, man. It's expensive. moving companies crews working all day and every weekday 
data mining companies that sell landlords' tenant screening reports listing past evictions. Housing courts. All of these businesses and revenue and income are being birthed off of people not being able to have income. This is going to be a a gut-wrenching, heartbreaking, prayerfully eye-opening book, man. Thought-changing, motivating book. Motivating people to, to, to get out and to search and to build and create solutions for people. Hopefully it changes the perspective and the way we view the Arlenes and others of the world. I'm excited, man. I'm excited about this book. I'm excited about the discussions. I'm looking forward to it. And I hope you are too, man. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Page Turners Podcast. Season 1 has started, man. Evicted by Matthew Desmond. Till next time, family. Take care of yourself.